First Timothy chapter 2. And I believe that God has a word for us today. We were just speaking downstairs before we came up here today uh, that this is one of those weeks that's kind of in between series. We're kicking off a series on marriage called For Better or For Worse. We just got out of a series called The Unveiling. Both series have been jam-packed and both series are heavy with the spirit on it. But we just even prayed in the room today that God doesn't want to waste this chance today. That God doesn't want this to be an off weekend. That God doesn't want us just to float through this until we get to the next series. But I believe that God has given me something for you, for today, for what you're in right now. And so I hope you're excited. Get in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to turn 36 here uh, at the end of March. 36th birthday. Yeah, thanks. That's great. Thanks, Mom. Appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to turn 36 at the end of March. And, and if you have young kids, you're in this kind of situation I might be, where my four-year-old named Owen, uh, Owen has been coming up and asking me over the last couple days, hey, Dad, what do you want for your birthday, right? I can't imagine what my four-year-old could possibly understand about what I want for my birthday. But he comes and asks me, Dad, what do you want for your birthday? And then he gives me some ideas of what it might be that I might want. Any show of hands, you've been there as a parent. You understand. And for some reason, the 34-year gap between who my son as a 4-year-old is and who I am as a 36-year-old, somehow in that 31-year gap, there is a misalignment of what might be a great birthday present. Have you ever experienced this? Right? So, so for my son, my four-year-old, he comes up and he says, Dad, what do you want for your birthday? And while I would love to have a couple cars for my birthday, I would love them to be BMWs, not necessarily Hot Wheels. Does that make sense? I'd love to have my mortgage paid off. I would love that. But I don't know if the four-year-old who I give a dime to when he does a chore, I don't know if that's possible for him, right? But my four-year-old comes to me all the time and he says, Dad, what do you want for your birthday? And so I guarantee for my birthday I'm going to get two Hot Wheels, I'm going to get maybe half of a cookie, and I'm going to get an incredible card. And while they are wonderful and they are good, it doesn't scratch the surface necessarily of what I could possibly want, does it? When my son asks me what I want for my birthday, when he asks, what can I do for you? He can only ask it through the scope or through the lens of what he is capable of giving me. Does that make sense? You see this with a young kid. Anything he tries, I have not heard my son say RRSP. I haven't, had, I haven't heard him say that. He hasn't offered any advice in that. He hasn't offered any financing advice. He hasn't offered to take the loan on my car from me. He hasn't offered that. And it made me think through these last couple weeks, I wonder if that isn't how you and I sometimes approach God. I wonder if that isn't sometimes how you and I go before God. The same line of questions. What I want to talk to you about today is a statement in the Bible. That if we can unpack this just for a few minutes, it's a statement that you and I, we definitely believe this generally. This is something every Christian, every church really believes this statement. But if we really were to, to focus in and try and understand some implications of it, I have the belief that it would change the way you and I operate every single day, the way our church operates. It stems from this kind of question my four-year-old has asked me. The kind of question you and I most often as Christians would ask is going to be this. You and I normally ask this question. It goes like this. What does God want from me. We might even say, God, what do you want for me? Who here's asked this question? I've asked this question. This is a question all of us ask all the time. And it's not necessarily a bad question at all. There's nothing negative about this kind of a question. It's just that this kind of a question forces God to speak to us through a lens of what it is that we can do for God or what it is that we might be able to offer to God. Does that make sense? When you and I ask the question, what does God want from me? It's not an evil question. It just leads us to a limited understanding of what God is capable of and what he could possibly want with this world. You and I ask God, what do you want me to be? What do you want for me, God? What do you want me to do with my life? What kind of stuff do you have for my life? I'm convinced that the better question, in fact, the most important question that could be asked of God is not necessarily, what do you want from me, God? The question that we need to ask as Christians isn't necessarily, what do you want for me, God? It's a much simpler question. You and I get it. It's not a lot of profound stuff here. The bigger question that we could ever ask God is simply this, what do you want? Not what do you want from me, 
But when we pause and ask the question, what does God want in the first place? Not what does he want that I could give him. Not what does he want me to do. Not what does he want me to uh, say. Not where does he want me to go. But God, do you actually want something? Just you, God. What do you want for yourself? It unlocks a truth that is going to captivate us. It unlocks a truth that's going to motivate us to do some pretty amazing things. What does God want for himself? Can God want something? Yes or no? Can God want something? Think about this for a second. The God of the universe... The one who speaks and stuff happens. The one who spoke and you showed up. The one who spoke and trees showed up. The one who spoke and everything happened. Can that God actually be in want of something? Is it possible for God to want something? I mean, he's God. Couldn't he just make it happen if he wanted it to happen? It's this question, God, do you want something? Can God lack something? Can God desire something that has yet to be fulfilled? Is it possible for God to want something? It's a major question when you and I think about it. And even if God does want something, is it possible for humans to know what it is? This is pretty existential. This is pretty big right out of the bat. Is it possible that God wants something? And if it is, is it possible for me to know? Is it possible for me, a finite human? I am one of 7.4 billion people breathing air today on this globe. Is it possible for insignificant me to even understand what an eternal God could possibly want? Just like my four-year-old, he cannot understand what a mortgage feels like and how I'd want that paid off. He can't understand what a savings plan would look like. He can't understand that the thing I want is a clean bill of health. He can't understand that in my world talking to God is it possible for me to even fathom what an eternal infinite mighty God could possibly want could I comprehend it if he told me could I understand it if he actually showed up and put it out to me can it be put into a sentence and even if I could understand it even if the question what does God want is answerable by God even if he could look at me and say it in a sentence even if my finite mind could comprehend what he could possibly want is there any chance even if it's presumptuous to think that I have something to do with what he wants is there a chance that you actually have something to do with the deepest desires of an eternal God. What does God want? Can I know it? And do I play a role in fulfilling God's deepest desires? This is either a presumptuous, assuming kind of a question, or there's something on it. The answer to this question and the implications that stem from it is something for real that God has had me wrestling with over the last probably 10 years. This is the kind of answer to this question is something that God has had me wrestle with over the last few years. Open up your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 7. I'm going to read this out for us. The book of 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is writing to his apprentice, his name's Timothy, and he says these words. He says, I urge you first of all to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases our Savior right here. Who wants what? Who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth? What does God want in this whole world? First Timothy seems to say God wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. This is something, like I said, you believe this generally, don't you? I don't have to probably convince you. Does God want this? At a baseline level, of course he does, right? That's what God obviously wants. God wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And this is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. Did you catch it? The Bible seems to say, if there is something that God would possibly want, what is it? God wants everybody to be saved. God's desire, his infinite uh, being, everything he could have wanted from eternity past till now. Does God want anything else? God wants primarily, fundamentally, God's deepest desire for this world is for everybody to be saved. There's not a lot of profundity I can put on it. I'm not wowing you yet, I don't think. God wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone to understand the truth. Of all the things God could possibly want, why this? 
Of all the things that would scratch an itch of an infinite God, why would it be little insignificant people, uh, 7.4 billion people right now, I think 108 billion people who have ever lived on this planet Earth, why would God want one of them to be saved and understand the truth? Of all the things you could ask God, what do you want? Why that? Where else does the Bible say this? The book of 2 Peter. Uh, Peter is addressing some people, and in Peter's context, he's writing a, a letter to some churches. And these churches, uh, there's some people, he calls them scoffers in there, who are making fun of the gospel. And they're saying, well, you keep telling me that Jesus is going to return someday, but I don't see him returning. I don't see him showing up. No one's taken anybody away yet. What's up with that? It must mean that Jesus doesn't really exist, does it, Peter? You keep telling me he's returning someday, but I haven't seen him do it yet. Why? What's up with that? And to them, Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. It says, the Lord really isn't being slow about his promises, some people think. No, instead, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. The Bible seems to have this theme that God really means it when he says, I want everybody to understand the truth. I want everybody to be saved. You ask me what I want for my birthday, it's everybody. You ask me next year, it's everybody. You ask me next year, it's everybody. If you ask me, Del Heine, what I want for my birthday, this year it's a fishing license. Next year it's going to be a new car. Next year, right? But God does not change. He does not shift from eternity past. If you asked him what he wanted, it's everybody. If you ask him 500 years ago, what does he want? Everybody. You ask him today, everybody. You ask him tomorrow, everybody. God wants all to be saved. In fact, this desire isn't something that's just in the New Testament. It's something that we see 600 years even before this word was written in 2 Peter. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, the Bible says this. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? In fact, when you look at the whole narrative of the Bible from beginning to end, from start to finish, you see this overarching desire of God for people. Of all the things an infinite God could want, it's you. Of all the things that could please him, of all the things that could satiate a desire that he has, it is every single person who has ever lived and ever will live understanding him, being saved, and understanding the truth. The whole narrative of the Bible says this. And before you and I go down the road any further, either in this message or in this year, or before we jump into a marriage series, I want us to pause because I think that God is actually asking us this question as a church. He's really saying, you know that I want everybody. You fundamentally, generally believe that I want everybody. Body, but if I looked you in the face today and said, do you really think I meant it when I said it? What would your answer be, King's Church? I say I want everybody, and you believe it. But if I looked at you in the face and said, do you really believe, do you actually believe that I, God Almighty, that I actually mean it when I say I want everybody? Is it just something I'm saying I want but can't actually handle? Is it something I'm saying I want but isn't possible? Do we really believe that God's one desire is for all people to be saved? That God is longing for billions and billions and billions of people breathing at this moment to understand salvation in Christ. That millions isn't enough. That tens of millions isn't enough. That hundreds of millions doesn't meet God's desire. Do you believe that when God says everyone, he means everyone? Do you believe God means them? Do you believe God means that other place, that other country, that neighbor, that coworker? Does God really mean it when he says it? Because if so, the understanding of God's desire has implications not only for what we do as a church, but for what you do when you go home today. And for what you do when you go to work on Monday. And for what you do when you go to the family reunion. Or what you do when you see the kid who seems to be kind of running away and he has a bunch of problems. It has implications for you and I every day. I've wrestled with this truth for years. This has been a tension in my life. I don't, I'm not kidding you at all. Uh, when I was a youth pastor down in Allentown, Pennsylvania, I've wrestled with this because I would understand. I'd say, God, it seems to say in the Bible, you say you want everyone to be saved. 
But when I would take a drive around Allentown, Pennsylvania, a town of hundreds of thousands of people, maybe three, four times bigger than the city of St. John, when I would drive around there and I would see houses of people I know don't know Jesus, as a youth pastor, I could think, I have a fraction of these students in my youth ministry. How about the thousands of students who have no understanding of the Lord? How about the thousands of students in our area who have no understanding of God? I came from a large church and a large youth ministry, but we were not even almost scratching the surface of what it seemed God wanted. God, do you actually mean it? And if so, why don't I see it? Do you actually mean you want everyone? And if so, why do I not see it happening right now in my day and in my time? When I moved to Canada, the same question followed. God, if you really meant that you want everyone to be saved, if you really meant that you want every single person in this world, no exception, forget their race, forget their religious background, forget their sexual orientation, you want everybody to be saved, then how come I'm not seeing it yet? God, you cannot be thrilled with the results right now. I was looking at stats the other day. If God really means he wants all people to be saved, then why do statistics show that only 27% of Canadians say that they go to church at least one time every month? That's the best we've got? That's the best we could show for it? God, you want everyone to be saved? 27% of us are going to show up maybe one time a month. And why, if God wants everyone to be saved, why does church attendance in the maritime provinces, why has it gone down 26% in the last 35 years? Does God really mean it? Is the problem with God? Does he want something he can't have? Did he overshoot the runway and ask for something he knows can't be had for himself? God wants everyone to be saved. And as I've studied, it isn't a random claim that God just throws out. It's not something to try and surprise you. It's not something to even try and beat you down and feel depressed about. It's none of that. He doesn't just want it, but you can see in Jesus Christ, he actually makes it possible. See, it'd be something for God to say, I want it, but then knowingly uh, distance himself and say, now there's a carrot out in front of you, it'll never happen. God doesn't just want everyone to be saved. He does not want everyone just to be saved, but God actually makes salvation possible to everyone through Christ. God makes this possible through Christ. God comes to the table. God, what do you want? I want everyone to be saved, and as proof, I'm coming to the table with the means by which it's physically and actually possible. Look again at chapter uh, 2 in, verse, uh, in, in 1 Timothy, verses 5 and 6. God says, I want everyone to be saved, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. There's only one way it's actually possible for all to be saved, the man Christ Jesus. Someone can say amen to that. He gave his life to purchase freedom for who? What does it say? For everyone. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. The very Son of God is the means by which salvation is possible for this whole world. Again, I don't think I'm impressing you yet. I haven't said anything you are going to fight me with just yet. The book of John tells us this in John chapter 3. You know this verse. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. You look at this. Take this back. Rewind the script 700 years before the book of John was written to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah prophesying of who Jesus Christ is. Prophesying of a Messiah who is capable of saving this whole world. Isaiah 53 says this. He says, yet it was our weaknesses that he, speaking of Jesus, carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Of all of us, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path." To follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. 
It's the very person of Christ who makes it possible. Fast forward even 20 years after uh, John 3.16 was written, the book of 1 Corinthians, it says this, So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, meaning Adam, because uh, Adam sinned and all of us have inherited that Adamic sin, means when we're born we're actually against God right from the get-go. Sorry for a little newsflash for you. You're against God from the get-go. It says just because as Adam sinned, all of us have sinned, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. The Bible tells us over and over and over that God's desire for all people to be saved has been made possible through the death of Christ. That God's desire for everyone to be saved was so strong that God would pay any cost. He'd pay any price. If I don't know who was the one to decide the price except for God, but if someone were to say and say, God, the salvation of the world, it's going to only take you maybe seven years of just hard work in God, he would have paid it. But that wasn't the price that was demanded for the salvation of the world, was it? The price that was demanded for your salvation and my salvation was nothing short than the very son of the living God. His one and only son. And that was the exact price that he willingly paid for you. If you had something that you wanted from me, or if I wanted to buy something from you, and you wanted to make it really difficult for me to get it, you'd probably put a pretty high price tag on it. And I would say, I just can't pay that price. But if I work really hard, I can probably come up with the money. Or if I need a new roof for my house and the roofer says, yeah, you got a hole in it, you definitely need it, the price is $1 million. I would probably think for a second, how can I come up with a million dollars? How can I figure this out? But if the roofer said the price for the hole in your roof is your son Owen, there's not one person in this whole room who would pay that price. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. But that's the very thing God was pleased to pay. Tell me more something, something more uh, costly than a son or a daughter. Tell me there could be a greater price for God to pay. So when I read that God didn't spare his son but offered him freely, and then I ask God, is it possible for all to be saved? The answer is a resounding Yes. Does God want all to be saved? Look at the price he paid for it. And the answer is yes. You bet he wants everyone to be saved. He really means it when he wants everyone to be saved. So my question for you is this. Who here, even by a show of hands, a round of applause, whatever you want to give to the Lord, would say, God, I'm thankful that you saved me? Who here in this room would say, God, that's been applied to my life at ease for you? Raise a shout to say, God, you've given this salvation to me. This is something I've tasted. For those of us who've experienced Christ, this is something we know. This is something we've accepted. The problem I have with this, the hurdle I can't get over with this, the thing that catches me up is why hasn't this happened for the other 120,000 St. Johners? Why hasn't this happened for everyone yet? If God wanted it, Christ made it available, and some of us have gotten it. Some of us have received it. How come the whole city of St. John, let alone the world, have not experienced who Christ is just yet? If God wants everyone to be saved, how come the person I work with for the last 20 years doesn't know Jesus yet? How come the person in the house 20 feet away from my house doesn't know who Jesus yet? If God wanted it and Christ paid the price for it, how come they don't know it yet? It's not enough for God to want everyone. It's not even enough for Jesus to die for everyone. God can want it all he wants, and Jesus could die of the death for everyone on this world. God didn't just want it. Jesus didn't make it just possible. But the thing I think that totally accomplishes it is that God accomplishes salvation for everyone through us. God accomplishes salvation for everyone through you and through me. The book of 1 Timothy says this. He says, and I have been chosen. Verse 7 says, I have been chosen. I want everyone to say, I have been chosen. Say this. I have been chosen. St. John East say, I have been chosen. I have been chosen. Yes, I have been chosen. Paul takes it on himself to say, I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating. I was actually picked. I'm just telling you the truth. See, Paul understands and he understood that while God's desire was serious... And while Christ's death made it possible, it could not be fulfilled or accomplished without his participation in it. The greatest desire God ever had for this world is dependent on, inf 
on finite, seemingly insignificant people like you and like me. Paul understood that unless he did something about it, unless he went and told people about this, that God's greatest desire would only remain a secret. The wake-up call that God has had on my life over the last 10 years. The thing I've wrestled with, this thing I've even disagreed with, the thing I've argued over seeing the ridiculous of it is somehow, God, why, in your infinite wisdom, why would you assign your primary desire in this world to something I'm supposed to do? God, why of the one thing you want in this whole world, why'd you put it on me to do? Why would you choose me? Why would he choose you? It seems to be a huge error in judgment for an infinite God, doesn't it? I want everyone to be saved, and I'm going to choose you to do it. Why? I wrestled with this with God. I wrestled with the fact that God's desire cannot be fulfilled apart from me. God's primary desire in this world cannot be fulfilled apart from you. It cannot be fulfilled. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians says this. He says, all of this salvation... Everything that Jesus has done for us is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has now given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are now Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Don't miss this. When the Bible tells us here that we've been given this task of reconciling, don't view this as a gift that God says, if you want it, it's for you. It's not like God's saying, hey, you want to get a kick out of life? I'm just going to give you this task of inviting other people into it, and you're just going to be blown away. But if you don't want it, don't worry about it. No, God's primary design for you, his fundamental purpose for you, when you have understood who Jesus Christ is, his fundamental purpose for you is to share this news with people around you. It's not something you have a choice in. It's not something you can choose not to receive. It's the primary function of anybody who's accepted Christ. Your God-given purpose in this world is to tell people who Jesus Christ did, to help them understand the good news of salvation, to help them understand that there is one way to God. God didn't save you to seclude you. God didn't save you to seclude you, but to use you. God did not save you so that you could hunker down in your comfortable house. God didn't save you so that grace could be applied to you and you could take a breath of fresh air and ride the rest of your life out until the day you die and you understand who Jesus is while your neighbor remains lost. God did not save you to seclude you, but he saved you to use you. Many of us are misusing this gift. Many of us are misusing the grace of God that's been given to us. He saved you, yes, but in saving you, he's tasked you with being useful in spreading the gospel to those around you. Now, here's the typical problem with this. The typical problem with this in any church or, uh, or knowing people who are maybe a little further ahead than you spiritually, the problem is that you might agree with what I'm saying. You might say, yeah, God probably wants me to share this with my friends. God probably wants me to be an ambassador in my work. God probably wants that. The problem, though, of knowing people who are further ahead or being part of a church, the problem is you also believe it would be far better for someone else to tell your friend than you. It's not hard for you to look around this room or to look at a pastor and say, you know what, I know God wants my friend to know who he is, and you, pastor, would be the best person to tell them, not me. Yeah, my friend needs to know who Jesus is, but I don't think Jesus wants me to be the one to tell him. I'm going to mess it up. I'm living a dumb life right now. I'm totally messed up myself. I don't understand all the ins and outs of who Jesus is. It's so easy for us to take this onus of preaching the gospel and place it on someone we think would be better suited for the task. Too often Christians pass off their God-given purpose. The reason you haven't been called to heaven yet, you pass off this role to someone you feel is better up for the task. Listen, if God wanted me, if God wanted a pastor at this church to save your friend on your block, he would have put me in the house on your block. If God wanted a pastor, if God wanted your small group leader, if God wanted that Christian who you think has it all together to save the third shift at the refinery, then God would have them working the third shift at the refinery. But he doesn't have me working there. He doesn't have us doing that. He has you. He has you living in your house. He has you living in your job. He has you living in your family. It's easy for us to say, God, why me? 
God, do you really want me? Did you really mean me? But God says right back, why not you? Why not now? Regardless of how far along you are in your faith, regardless of what you might be struggling with and what you feel might disqualify you from sharing in this ministry of reconciliation, you need to understand that you are the perfect person to reach everybody you know with the gospel. You are the perfect person to reach your neighbor. You are the perfect person to reach your son. You are the perfect person to reach your boss. God has placed you purposely and specifically where you live for a purpose. You work where you work for a holy purpose. You know who you know for a holy purpose. You know who you know for a redemptive purpose. In fact, this mission is an optional. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 28. When Jesus is about to go to heaven, he says to his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, of the authority that God's given me, if I am in charge of all creation, if I am in charge of this universe, if everything is now up to me, I have complete authority to do whatever I want, then here's what I want. I want you to go. And I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, don't think you're going alone. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The very last thing Jesus says before he went to heaven was all authority has been given to me, now I'm placing it on you. God already wanted it, I already made it possible, now it's up to you to fulfill it. What are you doing? Who are you sharing this with? Is this a ministry of reconciliation you're taking part in? If you've been saved, why not you? And why not now? We were in a prayer meeting this last Wednesday, and uh, we were praying and pressing into this idea that God wants thousands in our region to understand who Jesus is. We we're pressing into this idea that, that God actually wants us to be a ministry and a light in the St. John region, that God would draw people to himself through this. And one of our brothers, a doctor at the regional, started praying out. And the thing he prayed, it was filled with passion. And it was filled with a God use me kind of idea. And what he said in here as he was praying for revival is he said, I'm tired of reading about revival just in the Bible. God, would you make us tired of just reading in the history books of the great things you've done? God, we don't want to read about it for another second. We want to see a move of God right here. We want to see a move of God right now. We want to see a move of God in our time and in our place. We want God to use our hands. We want God to use our mouths. We want God to use our lives to bring people to a knowledge of the Savior. And as this man was praying, you could feel the passion. You could feel the spirit rising in the room to say, yes, you get it. Yes, you understand it. Do you believe it? Do you want it? Who here believes revival can spring out of St. John? Who here believes that God actually wants all men to know who Jesus is and he might want to use us to do it? Who longs for the day to see thousands set free from addiction, to see thousands set free from bondage, to see thousands set free from death and brought back to life in our day and in our time? Listen, God is looking for people. God is looking for a church who takes him at his word. God is looking for people who take him at his word, who really believe that he meant it when he said, I want all people to be saved, who really believe that Jesus really did make it possible, and who really believe that God could possibly want to use you to bring this full circle. God is looking for a person to believe that. God is looking for a church to believe it. Any success we've had as a church... Any effectiveness that God has allowed us to have, and God has given us favor, God has given us grace, God has given us success, any of it comes back to this simple thing. We believe as a church that God means it. We believe he means it. We believe Jesus made it possible, and we are bold enough to believe that God might even want to use us to do it. Do you believe it, church? I want to free some people up here today. I maybe want to challenge a few of you as well to understand this. As you see our church growing and as you see us reaching people for the gospel, and you've seen hundreds of people understand who Jesus Christ is over the last years, and we've kind of doubled in size in the last four years, I want to free you up if you're struggling with this, and I want to challenge you if you're, if you're kind of in a hard part with this. I want to challenge you with this. It is not our goal to grow this church. It is not our goal to reach every single person for the gospel. That goal didn't come from us. 
It's not something we dreamed up. That has been God's goal from eternity past. It is his goal today for every church. It's his goal for every person. He is looking around this world and saying, who believes me for it? And so if you're struggling with where we're at as a church, I'd ask you to take that up with God. And ask God if that isn't really his goal and his purpose. The most effective churches are the ones who align themselves with God's desire. More importantly, the most fulfilled, successful, effective people on this planet are the ones who align themselves with God's desires. Can you know what God ultimately wants? Yes. Is it conceivable to think that he might want to use someone as insignificant as you to do it? Yes. In fact, in large part, he leaves it to you. Romans chapter 10 says this in verse 13. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believed in him? Follow this. And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. I want to bring you in on how God's dealing with me about this over the last few weeks, and in fact, over the last few days. One of the things God's challenged me with this is this. I've been working through this. God, do you mean it? Do you want to use us? Do you want to use me? And God checked me in my spirit this week, and he said this. He said, and I wrote this down. I wanted to get this straight from what God said to me. He said this. He said, although the church you attend and the church in which you lead is successful and is reaching thousands and has seen hundreds come to faith in Christ, don't let the success of the church you lead and the church you attend be the only thing you have to show for yourself when you stand before me someday. Because while I have a plan for your church, while I have a plan for your church corporately, I've called you, Dell, personally. While God has a plan for this church, and yes, it is going to be large, and yes, we are going to see hundreds saved, don't let it give you an out to believe and fulfill the calling God has placed on you personally. Don't let the success of an organization be all you have to show before the throne of God. Well, someone else is better to do it. Someone else ought to try. Someone else ought to do it. And so for me, as I worked this out with God this week, what it looked like for me in response to wanting to fulfill God's purpose in my life, in response for me saying, God, I believe it and do whatever you want, use me, what I did. This week, I went door to door in my town. I went up Rosedale Avenue, and I knocked on one door, and I said, hi, my name is Dell. I'm a pastor at this church. I want to pray for you. Is there anything I can pray for you for? I just want to be a great neighbor, and I want to help you understand who Jesus is. And I went to the next door, and I knocked on the door, and I said this. And it's so simple, and I almost feel a little guilty, like, man, I should have been doing this years ago, and I'm a pastor, and why haven't I gotten this straightened out? But I just want to say, hallelujah, God, use me. God, use me. Don't just use a church. Use me. Don't just use someone else. Use me, God. I don't want to miss out. How could I say no? How can I ask someone to do it? God didn't place you on my block. He placed me on my block. So I'm going to go and reach it. How are you going to be respond? I've got Rosedale Avenue covered. You can't have it. It's not yours. Man, I'm just telling you, it's not yours. You don't, don't even touch it. But someone needs Hampton Road. Someone needs me in his cove. Someone needs East St. John. Someone needs West St. John. Where has God planted you? And will you take part in this ministry of reconciliation? Here's how I want to close with this. I want you to go as someone who's been sent. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of the gospel. As I went house to house, I just said to myself, God, how beautiful this is. From this perspective, it might look weird knocking on my neighbor's door, but from God's perspective, he says, how beautiful is that? This guy gets it. I want you to be one who's been sent. And I can't think of a better way to maybe close this out than for us to even spend a moment remembering exactly what it was that Christ saw when he saw us, of remembering the value that Christ placed on us, of remembering the sacrifice that God placed on us. And so the way we're going to close this service out today for us at East, for us here at the Valley, is we're going to participate in communion. And it's going to be a time where we take the bread and we take the cup and we say, God, would you thank you, God, one, for saving me. God, thank you. I remember the sacrifice you made. God, I connect myself with that again. I say, thank you, God, for seeing me. And in the quiet of the moment, I want to see you to say, God, I want you to do this for my neighbor. God, I want you to use me to reach my coworker. God, I want you to use me this week. God, just as you've saved me and I could just hunker down in this room and enjoy communion and just be you and me. God, you've called me into relationship with so many others. God, would you in this moment place on my heart what I'm supposed to do this week?
Would you give me a mission? Would you send me? For some of you, maybe this is the first time you're hearing the gospel. Maybe this is the first time you're understanding that Jesus paid a price you couldn't pay and asked you to enter into eternal life, into a good life, an abundant life in this life and one for the next. And maybe for you, community, is you accepting for the first time the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so the way we're going to do it is this. At East, there are two stations in the front. If you just kind of come down the theater aisles, you'll see two stations with servers at the front. For us at the Valley, we have tables around the room. I want to pray, and I'm going to release us to take part in communion. As we remember Christ's sacrifice for us, I want you to be able to go back to your seat and say, God, now what? Where am I going? Where have you sent me? Where am I planted? Let me grow. Let me reach this world for you. You can take the cup and drink it. You can take the bread and eat it. Don't wait for direction. But as we sing this song, I want you to respond. So Heavenly Father, right now, with the grace of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ applied to us, God, we say thank you. Thank you that we already know this truth. Thank you that we already sat under this teaching. Thank you that we've already been saved. God, now would you do it for others? Would you do it through us? So God, we remember your sacrifice, and we ask for you to send us. We ask for you to use us beyond our wildest dreams. We ask for you to use us where we've been planted, in the house we live in, the block we live on, the job we live, the people we know. We say, God, if you meant it and Jesus made it possible, then we are going to accomplish it, and we will see a revival like this world has never seen, and we will see hundreds come to know you, and it will be for Jesus Christ's glory in this place. And everybody said, amen. As these guys lead out, I want you to come forward and respond.